episode 178 of the Anarchist News Podcast, a digest on anarchist activity, ideas, and conversations from the previous week on anarchistnews.org. We hope it's useful to and fun for anarchists and the anarcho-curious. Give us feedback and constructive criticism by email at podcast at anarchistnews.org. For more information and usually some good commentary, see you at your favorite non-sectarian anarchist site with commentary anarchistnews.org. Introductory note to Locked Up by Alfredo M. Bonanno. Prison is the mainstay of the present society. Often it does not seem so, but it is. Our permissive, educative society allows itself to be guided by enlightened politicians and is against any recourse to strong measures. It looks on scandalized at the massacres dotted all over the world map and seems to be composed of so many respectable citizens whose only concerns are respecting nature and paying as little tax as possible. This society, which considers itself to be far beyond barbarity and horror, has prison on its very doorstep. Now, the mere existence of a place where men and women are held locked up in opportunely equipped iron cages, watched over by other men and women wielding bunches of keys, a place where human beings spend years and years of their lives doing nothing, absolutely nothing, is a sign of the utmost disgrace, not just for this society, but for a whole historical era. I'm writing this introduction in Rabibia prison, and I don't feel like changing a word of the talk that I gave in Bologna a few years ago. If I compare the thick-headedness of the prison institution today with that of my experiences recounted in the text published below, I see that nothing has changed. Nothing could change. Prison is a sore that society tries in vain to conceal. Like the doctors in the 17th century who treated the plague by putting ointment on the sores, but left rats running around among the rubbish, Today, at every level of the prison hierarchy, technicians are trying to cover up this or that horrible aspect of prison, not realizing that the only way to face the latter is to destroy it. We must destroy all prisons and leave not one stone standing, not keep a few around in order to remember them in the way that humanity has done with other constructions that testify to the most atrocious infamy. Now someone who tends to beat about the bush will ask, how can we destroy prison? How can we get rid of it completely in a society like this? where a bunch of bosses called the state decide for everybody and impose these decisions by force. So the best of these squawkers, the quick-witted with hearts of gold, try to mitigate prisoners' suffering by giving them cinema once a week, colored TV, almost edible food, weekly visits, some hope of being released before the end of their sentences, and everything else. Of course, these good people want something in exchange. After all, that's not asking too much. They want prisoners to behave and show respect to the wardens, acquired the capacity to resist years and years of inactivity and sexual abstinence, undergo psychological treatment by specialized personnel and declare, more or less openly, that they have been redeemed and are capable of returning to the society that expelled them for misbehaving. I have been a frequenter of prisons for more than a quarter of a century, so can compare a few things. Once prisoners literally lived in an infamous, disgusting hole visited by rats and various other creatures. They only saw the light of day for a few minutes, did not have TV, and could not even make a cup of coffee in their cells. The situation has certainly improved today. Prisoners in Italy can actually make meals, even cakes in the cell. They have more hours recreation in a day than they used to get in a month, and can have extra visits and make a few phone calls to the family. They can work for a decent wage, half the average wage outside, watch color TV, have a fridge, a shower, and everything else. Of course, prisoners accept these improvements. They're not stupid, and why not? They also accept paying the price by showing themselves to be good and condescending, arguing with the guards as little as possible, and telling stories to the educators and psychologists who hang around the corridors like shadows, waiting for it to be time to go home and for the end of the month to pick up their salary. 
Apart from the obvious consequences of lowering the level of the clash in prisons, nobody in this scenario really believes that the prisoner will be reinserted into so-called civil society. It is a farce that each player recites magnificently. Let's take the priest for example. If he isn't stupid, he knows perfectly well that all the prisoners who go to mass go to meet prisoners from other wings whom they wouldn't otherwise see. He accepts that with the hypocrisy of his trade and gets on with it. Of course, now and again, some prisoner will show a sudden faith, enlightenment on the road to Damascus. But this, the priest knows perfectly well, is functional to the treatment for getting out on parole or having a suspended sentence or another of the many benefits provided for by the law, but subordinate to the approval of the custodial personnel, educators, psychologists, and also the priest. What was clear when one was face to face with the police becomes hazy inside. Today, nearly all prisoners are losing their identity as such and are accepting permissive changes that are gradually trapping them within a mechanism that promises not so much to redeem them as to let them out a little before the end of their time. As the attentive reader of this little book will see, there's a line of reasoning that claims to want to abolish prison. Now, to abolish means to ablate, i.e. eliminate, an essential component from society. Leaving things as they are, this abolition would be impossible, or if it were to come about, it would turn out to be in the interests of power. Let's try to go into this. The only way to do something serious about prison is to destroy it. That is no more absurd or utopian than the thesis that wants to abolish it. In both cases, the state, for which prison is essential, would have recourse to extreme measures. But specific conditions of a revolutionary character could make the destruction of prison possible. They could create the social and political upheaval that would make this utopia come true due to the sudden absence of the power required for prison to continue to exist. In the case of abolition, if it were to happen progressively, it would mean that the state was providing for prison in a different way. In fact, something of this sort is actually happening. As I will show, prisons are opening up, political forces that were once quite cut off from them now enter them regularly. There are all kinds of cultural manifestations, cinema, theater, painting, poetry, all these sectors are hard at work. This opening also requires the prisoner's participation. At first, participation seems to eliminate disparity, allowing everyone to be equal. It means that people don't have to stay locked up in cells all day and gives them the possibility to talk and make their demands heard. And this is true, in that the new prison has taken the place of the old, but not all prisoners are prepared to participate. Some still have their dignity as outlaws, which they don't want to lose, so they refuse. I'm not proposing the old distinction here between political and common law prisoners, which has never really convinced me. Personally, I have always refused, and continue to do so now in the prison where I'm writing this introduction, the label of political prisoner. I am referring to the outlaws, those whose lives have been entirely dedicated to living against and beyond the conditions established by law. It is clear that if on the one hand prison is opening up to prisoners who are prepared to participate, it is closing down on those who are not and want to remain outlaws even in prison. Given the advances in control in society, the great potential of information technology in this field, and the centralization of security forces and the police, at least at the European level, can, we can well imagine that those going against the law in the not-too-distant future really will have absolute determination of the outlaw. We can sum up by saying that the project of power for the future is to abolish the traditional prison and open it up to participation, and at the same time create a new, absolutely closed version. A prison with white coats where the real outlaws will end their days. This is the prison of the future, and those who are talking about abolition will be happy, in that in the future these prisons with white coats might not even be called by such a hateful name, but rather clinics for mental patients. Isn't someone who insists on rebelling and affirming their identity as an outlaw in defiance of all propositions to participate in society absolutely mad? And do mad people perhaps not constitute a medical rather than a penitentiary problem?
Such a society having a greater capacity for social and political control would call for everyone to collaborate in this repressive project, so it would have less need to have recourse to sentencing. The very concept of sentencing would be put in question. Basically, most of the prison population today are people who have committed crimes such as taking drugs, drug dealing, petty theft, administrative offenses, etc., which from one moment to the next might no longer be considered such. By removing these people from prison and reducing the probability of more serious offenses such as robbery and kidnapping through increased levels of social control, few actual real crimes will remain. Crimes of passion could very well be dealt with through recourse to house arrest, and that is the intention. And so who would remain in prison under such conditions? The few thousand individuals who refuse to accept this project, who hate such a choice and refuse to obey or put themselves down. In a word, conscious rebels who continue to attack, perhaps against all logic, and against whom it will be possible to apply specific conditions of detention and cure closer to that of an asylum than an actual prison. That is where the logical premise of prison abolition leads us in the last analysis. The state could very well espouse this thesis at some time in the not-too-distant future. Prison is the most direct, brutal expression of power, and like power it must be destroyed, it cannot be abolished progressively. Anyone who thinks they can improve it now in order to destroy it in the future will forever be a captive of it. The revolutionary project of anarchists is to struggle along with the exploited and push them to rebel against all abuse and repression, so also against prison. What moves them is the desire for a better world, a better life with dignity and ethic, where economy and politics have been destroyed. There can be no place for prison in that world. That is why anarchists scare power. That is why they are locked up in prison. Alfredo M. Bonanno, Rabibia Prison, 20th of March, 1997. new this week. Jail burnt down from abolition media worldwide. This is the whole communique. Quote, Seattle revolutionaries burned down a youth jail construction site. On July 25th, demonstrations were held across the U.S. and around the world in solidarity with the uprisings in Portland, Oregon. In Seattle, Washington, revolutionaries burned down the buildings at the construction site of a new youth detention center. The windows of the building that houses state patrol and several other state offices were smashed and road flares and rocks thrown at police. Nightly street fights have been taking place in Portland for the last six weeks between residents and city police and Border Patrol troops. The Border Patrol troops were sent as a show of federal force, but have been beaten back by unrelenting resistance and growing forces in the streets." Unquote. Doris Ensinger, 1944-2020, from Anon by Nick Heath. One of the many women behind the scenes, unwilling to speak but at least available to write, has died. Quote, Doris was to say, at great events, I was with him, but not in the front line. I did not like public speaking or being a protagonist. I preferred to help organize or document the events. I am not a heroic woman, but I have defended my ideas fearlessly in other areas as now in this book." Unquote. Hmm, what does heroic mean, do you think? Anyway, links to her writing into an interview on the Kate Sharpley site. Text from Kenneth Mayer Falk for a Week of Solidarity, from the website for the International Week. Not particularly inspired, but certainly not wrong, words from someone who is funnier in his self-description. Quote, I am a so-called redskin, or rash, 
that is, a red and anarchist skinhead. And since I sometimes express myself clearly, in 2000 and 2004, further convictions for coercion, insults, threats were made to the detriment, as the lawyers call it, of prison lawyers, judges, prosecutors, as well as a few politicians and some others. I am in for a total of 16 years and nine months and three weeks imprisonment from the end of 2013. And after that, preventive detention, i.e. a release is unforeseeable, unquote. What is our motto this week and every week? Write an, an anarchist, anarchist prisoner, prisoner today! today. Notes on social anarchism or lifestyle anarchism from Libertarian Labyrinth by Sean Wilbur. Okay, for the probably many, many people who never read and or were unconvinced by Bob Black's takedowns of Bookchin, now we have one from a very different quarter. Less funny, assuming you enjoy Bob's humor, and also so, so, so much less controversial. This challenges Bookchin's scholarship, analysis, and good faith. Quote, Now, it is quite possible that Bookchin was so opposed in principle to anarchist individualism that he really had no idea about the theoretical debates in French individualist papers or the contributions of individualists to projects like the Encyclopédie Anarchiste. But it's hard to believe that he was unaware of the similar work in Spanish individualist papers. It's a bad start, and yet he obviously wants it to stand in as a kind of foundation for the rest of his argument, staging the great Manichaean battle he imagined he was a part of, unquote. And while I stand by the less funny, this piece is in no way not funny, just features a quieter, drier wit. Works much better for some of us. Earth First, Summer Dispersal. From Freedom News UK. Did you get it? It's a dispersal, not a convergence. Did you get it? Quote, we are calling for action against sites of fossil fuel extraction and burning, habitat destruction, animal exploitation, the legacy of colonialism, incarceration, the military-industrial complex, and any other sites of environmental, human, or animal harm, and those organizations that also have direct responsibility through financing them. The days of action are Friday 21st and Saturday 22nd of August, and you can do as much or as little as you like over these two days and beyond." Unquote. This sort of obligatory response to the current situation is understandable, and loads of groups are making such calls. But it makes me want to talk to people about what they think the purpose of those gatherings were in the first place, thinking there can or should be a smooth, unexamined transition from groups of people who got together to talk and challenge and meet and ponder and make and lose friends and lovers, etc., to much smaller groups or no groups at all that mostly affiliate in name or target only, is that the best way to do this? What are other options that both leverage the activities and the socializing that has been done up till now, and also doesn't seem to pretend that what's happening now is not paradigm breaking? I don't know, no reason for this question to be asked on this particular story, but that's how it happened this week. What do you think? God is Dead by Kurihara Yasushi, translated by Max Rez. Enthusiastically positive blog entry on Tooi Koe, a book about Kano Sukako by Set Toichi Jakucho. Quote, Even so, you'll inevitably fail if you speak with a third-person perspective and objective voice. All that makes you is an omniscient author, moving your characters like chess pieces towards a goal. The story is closed. That's damn boring. Most of all because all that's happening is me the subject controlling objects. There's no dreaming, and we don't overcome the world we're in. No matter how good the story's contents are, what gets unconsciously planted in other people is the cognition framework of the speaker dominating the one they're speaking about itself. But Sukako's monologue leaps over that. The subject is I at baseline, but while you're reading it, you lose track of who that is. Whose view is this? At times, it becomes unclear. For example, the kind, older sisterly, lover-like gaze with which she looks at Kansun. 
It's strangely real. Of course, before her execution, Sugoko asked after Kansen, so she probably felt sorry for how she had treated him and anxious about it. But in the book, those feelings are clearly in excess, kinder and warmer than the real Sugoko, unquote. From what I can tell, this is a philosophically minded anarchist appreciating the life of a socialist woman. My other friend, who is into these historic Japanese women radicals, compares Kano unfavorably to the perhaps more heroic Kaneko Fumiko, which seems fair, except that I'm not sure we have decided on what heroic means, especially in reference to women. Anyway, this is a fun and informative read. Enthusiasm is endearing, and informative enthusiasm is even better. How to Doom Anarchism from C4SS by Spooky. This is a C4SS response to an article from C4SS last week. This one arguing for more specificity and explaining how Dakota Hensley's points could be used against what the C4SS readership, presumably, commonly understands to be anarchism. We called last week's article controversial, so clearly it has points that can be taken all kinds of ways, and while this response is not the worst I can imagine, I wouldn't say it steps up the conversation. It makes some solid points, but they tend to be in the accounting category, nitpicking and spellchecking, and it ends on a particularly unfortunate note as far as I'm concerned. Quote, Yes, conservative anarchists can exist, but we're not doomed if some of us choose to keep a safe distance between ourselves and conservatives. If you choose to use your privileges to recruit from the right, that's your prerogative. For some of us, however, conservatives can be dangerous. Reaching out to potential allies is a noble effort, but if we spend more time cozying up with right-wingers than we do defending people from oppression, we will certainly, as Hensley say, doom anarchism." Unquote. This piece swings from one definition of conservative to another, leaving it to the reader to understand that sometimes conservatives are okay and sometimes they're not, a vagueness in language that the author complains about with last week's article. Not to mention that it takes for granted only the left's definition of what oppression means, for example, and definitely emphasizing the victim status of those who are accepted as victims. I know, it's a complicated world out there. P.S. Shout out to whoever found the image for this story. Lol. Arson and Solidarity with Terra Incognita from Athens Indie Media. Quote, the occupation of Terra Incognita during its 17 years of presence and action writes in big letters in the history book the word consistency and defending both the occupation and the comrades who are in the crosshairs of repression during this period is a non-negotiable revolutionary duty for us all. We claim responsibility for the arson attack on a vehicle of the diplomatic corps on Megalu Alexandru Street on the night of Tuesday, August 18th, as a first reflexive action of aggressive solidarity in response to the plans of state repression. We are at war, and our solidarity is a weapon that has the bullet in the chamber." Unquote. Words by Comrade Francisco Solar from Indie Media Nantes. A statement for the International Week of Solidarity with Anarchist Prisoners. Quote, Anarchic solidarity is a revolutionary solidarity, which understands that an important form of solidarity is to continue to strike. Understanding that every action against power is a gesture of solidarity with the comrades in prison. That it sees the struggle in the imprisoned anarchist comrades and does not reduce them only to the category of prisoners, which is where power has placed them. It is to remind the enemy that no matter how much they imprison us, we will continue to attack them without pausing, and that we have assumed our imprisonment since we took up the struggle." Unquote. Yes, anarchists must assume our own imprisonment and that of our friends and family. To take ourselves seriously, we must remember how deeply we are hostile to the manufactured world around us. We must consider how we will continue to act through and despite how the state reacts to us, including prison, including murder, including getting kicked off corporate social media sites. Oh, no, wait, that's too far. Sorry. 
Pura Acrasia from the blog of a quote pissed off Chicano prole with a keyboard, unquote. This is a pretty straightforward explanation of anti-politics within the context of chaos in the streets these days around anti-black police violence and other things. Quote, but the instrumentalization of the riot as a thing that works misunderstands the riot. This is projected onto the riot after the fact. It is an attempt to make the riot political, to make it legible to state power. Though the riot, as expressed by racialized proles, is essentially anti-political, the white racist riot is fascism in its extra-legal street mode. See the Tulsa race riot and the Zoot Suit riots. Rioters are indeed often the disenfranchised, but the riot is not an act for integration into the racial regime, but an act against it. Rioters are not trying to communicate a program to be fulfilled by the state as much as acting directly and openly against the present state of things. Otherwise, a peaceful march ending with a stage and a list of speakers is in order." Unquote. There is some sort of odd commentary that didn't seem to be really addressing the content of this piece, going in a number of directions, but some weeks are like that. To me, this piece is addressing some of the meta-issues of the C4SS articles, along the lines of how much do we all continue to operate in sync with the cops in our heads when we're fighting ourselves as well as others, where is the flow, how do we do them both? But maybe that's just me. Anathema, Volume 6, Issue 6, from anathema.noblogs.org. Brief History and Explanation of Black August, New Projects, Thoughts on What to Do in the Current Lull in the Storm on the Streets, which includes good advice for us all, I think. Repression Updates, a note on die-offs arguing that those who reject environmental crises are ignoring currently existing die-offs that are already killing humans and others around the planet. Some Attacks Against Cops, this article is called DIY Defunding, ha! an anti-school screed, and some thoughts on the short-lived nature of the widespread rioting and inspired thievery of Philly from May 31st to June 2nd. Continues to be worth checking out. Solidarity from Philly to Kenosha from Anon, a very short report back on a protest in Philly, apparently. Quote, the solidarity with Kenosha, Wisconsin demo was more impressive than usual. People met up, discussed the plan, and started promptly. Escalation started right away and continued as a group of over 45 people marched through the streets chanting and smashing windows of banks, businesses, and developments. There was a surprising amount of destruction. One of the most impressive things, though, was the strong collective intelligence. There was good communication, barricading, and improvisation. People were decisive about both sticking to the plan and being flexible. Folks caught and lost a police tail and dispersed smoothly due to barricades and quick decision-making, all the while staying level-headed and tight in stressful moments." Unquote. Letter from imprisoned anarchist comrade Carla from Nantes Indie Media. This week, Carla was extradited to Italy, where she is now housed in Vigevano Prison, mostly reserved for political prisoners. Perhaps she will be able to make some good friends, but probably they're careful to keep the people separated. Carla gives us an account of her arrest and how the prisoners are being treated in the time of COVID. Quote, it seems that in recent times, arrest by means of a European arrest warrant and subsequent extradition have become mere formalities for the European justice system. We have seen this recently in Italy on several occasions, but also in the repression that followed the Hamburg riots or in Greece and Spain. European police forces are refining their weapons and their collaboration seems to be getting closer, exchanging tips and services. So it seems to me that it is up to us to look into the matter and study the mechanisms." Unquote. Info is given on her address and we are encouraged to write her. So add her to your list of correspondence and get to writing. Juan Flores Riquelme, Solidarity with Monica and Francisco, from Contra Info. Quote, These words are addressed to those daredevils who, without looking back, 
have defended anarchic and anti-authoritarian ideas with their teeth and claws. Monica Caballero and Francisco Solar are brothers and sisters with deep convictions and critiques that are impossible to break even with this new blow of power to their lives." Unquote. Also, nice pick. Arson Against Transit Company from Contra Info. Quote, At 2130, we intercepted a Caterpillar bus from Route 402 of the modern fleet of the wealthy and fascist company Met Bus. It came without people because it was the last route. We got the driver off the bus, not before he had taken all his things out, and reminded him that this was not against him, but against his bosses. We gave him money to pay for a taxi to his house and set the machine on fire to the sound of the shouts of joy and adrenaline from the people who were demonstrating." Unquote. Adorable, I say. Surely even Kevin Keating would have to approve? Oh, never mind. Message for the International Week of Solidarity with Anarchist Prisoners from Contra Info. It says for the week, but it seems to focus on the specifics of Monica and Francisco. But at any rate, quote, No? Okay. Quote, for those of us who confront domination, the story of power will never speak for us. Both guilt and innocence belong to those who exercise or condone punishment. From our destructive practice with the prison and authoritarian dynamics, we can only despise every categorization with which the enemy tries to define, distort, and separate us, whether as culprits, leaders, or prisoners. We prefer to speak of comradeship, of struggle, of offensive, of solidarity, of those practices that are intertwined with each other, blurring the contours that limit where one ends and the other begins. Therefore, for us, the interesting thing, the answer, the proposal, will always go through a question as basic as it is elemental, to intensify the struggle and expand solidarity beyond immediacy. This is how a few words of solidarity are transformed into agitation, and how the love and complicity towards our people search for ways to hit back and more." Unquote. One year of resistance against state terrorism from Act for Freedom, a pretty brief statement in support of squats, especially in the face of gentrification, oppression of refugees, etc. Quote, the plan for mass evacuations of squats coincides with the militarization of entire areas, with the expansion of the supervisory repressive mechanism and the police barbarity it inflicts on the bodies of fighters. In the past year at Notara 26, the housing squat for refugees and migrants, we mourned for every space of struggle that fell into the hands of the enemy. We mourned for every human who lost hope, for every hope for a better life that was tarnished under police boots. We felt anger for those injured with opened heads, the sad looks in the police buses and cages, the locked doors. We were moved by every act of resistance and attempt to reclaim stolen land. We know very well, however, that no idea, no movement is evacuated. We ourselves accept daily the increasing pressure of the government with th threats of evacuation, insulting comments against residents and people of solidarity, thrashings, attempts of invasion, constant harassment, and even Nazi slogans we have witnessed by the sad entourage of the police shouting outside the squat. A year later, we are still here, stronger, more united, more determined than ever, with an immense wave of solidarity embracing us, forming a circle of care around us." Unquote. Best of luck. Long live the squats. Words from an anarchist bookstore via Contra Info, translation by The Collective. Although I am not well versed in the world of prison support, it appears to be one full of contradiction. As anarchists, I presume we are all for the end of prisons and prison society, and thus against working within its logic. However, when an anarchist is caught up in the web of the state, a lack of purity which seems to pervade most of life is laid bare. Are we acting as anarchists when we petition the state to treat prisoners according to the state's rules? 
when we proclaim the innocence or righteousness of a particular prisoner? Here's the piece's answer. Quote, under this premise, can prisons, no matter how reformed they are, be reconfigured to such an extent that they are no longer considered centers of extermination? For some, the answer could be answered with a half yes, perhaps due to the hope that they have for better conditions within confinement or the absence of gendarmes and the processes of social reintegration. The truth is that we do not share the idea that the prison, no matter how much improvements made to it, for the well-being of the prisoners, can be transformed into something other than an extermination center. Even so, we stand in solidarity with those who mobilize for their own people under these expectations and parameters, not sharing the discourse of reform, but accompanying them with the destruction of prison society." Unquote. Audio and video, Art and the Void with Margaret Kiljoy, an hour and 45 minutes from Last Born in the Wilderness podcast. Presented here is a conversation with, quote, anarchist author, musician, and crafter, unquote, Margaret Kiljoy, loosely centered around their recent essay, Art and the Void. Kiljoy continues to be a somewhat frustrating, mostly charming ball of contradictions when it comes to the anarchist space they inhabit, all of which is on full display here. In addition to elaborating on their conception of reality as an ice flow, Margaret relates this metaphor to a personal understanding of gender, art, and general anarchist discourse through images of thin and thick points, dives into the sea of possibility, and returns to majoritarian reality. Scattered among this intimate storytelling is the other side of Margaret's contradictions. For example, taking Joe Biden to task for propagating the image of anarchists as arsonists and criminals when he should apparently know better. Hmm. This isn't helped by the host's remark about not wanting to necessarily support Venezuela, but enjoying its role as a, quote, a thorn in the side of American imperialism, unquote. Though Margaret at least points out the problems with that stance. Elephant in the Room, International Week of Solidarity with Anarchist Prisoners, an hour from Elephant in the Room. As noted in the title, this episode centers on what I'm now abbreviating as the IWOSWAP, or IWOSWAP, through interviews with, quote, Nicole from England and Mikolai from Belarus about their experiences in prison, how they receive solidarity, and what does it mean for them, unquote. Although the background of each interviewee's imprisonment differs, Mikolai was given five years in relation to an arson attack on an embassy in Minsk. Nicole received three and a half years in relation to the Stop Huntington Animal Cruelty Campaign. The refrain is similar, that prisoner support in various forms helped them to stay sane and alive while locked up. In Nicole's case, one bit of information which seems important is that she only began receiving support once they were actually locked up, struggling through the preceding phases of their ordeal more or less alone. A good reminder that support is necessary in any portion of an anarchist or any person's interaction with the justice system. Enemies of Society, Drawing First Blood, 57 minutes from Immediatism.com. Here, Immediatism presents the preamble from Enemies of Society, a tome of collected egoist and individualist writings. As a preface, this piece works to frame many of the common concepts found in such writing, namely a rejection of ideology, an affirmation of the unconquered individual, the lie of altruism, Max Stirner's philosophy of negation, etc. Mixed in with the framing are certain expected polemic inflections, coming oh so close to using the word sheeple, but overall the piece works well as a roadmap for the subsequent collected writings. You can find Enemies of Society on littleblackguard.com. Peter Gelderloos on where we're at, an hour and 15 minutes from the final straw. This episode starts off with the always delightful Sean Swain's reframing. Reframing of smashing a Starbucks windows and eating the rich, or as he says, quote, promoting an alternative diet, unquote, <laughs> as in fact social goods. The rest is Peter Gelderloos providing his usual raft of historical and geopolitical context on the current moment. 
Peter's main contention is the refreshing idea that although there is inevitably reaction to any kind of social shift, change, rift, or uprising, it makes little sense to continually project images of past reaction onto the present moment rather than observing actual events. Read, not everything that's bad is fascist. Do anarchists support democracy? 17 minutes from immediatism.com. Reading from the recent Pistols Drawn slash Little Black Cart title to The Desert Maker, Immediatism presents said author's thoughts on the relationship between anarchy and democracy. Spoiler, they're again it. The author's main points will sound familiar to the antisocial set. Democracy is the tyranny of the majority. We seek rule by no one, not merely rule by the oh-so-elusive people, and we should focus on individual autonomy rather than mass consensus. This piece also mentions the change my mind guy meme, yay for memes and writing. This week's podcast was sound edited by Greg. The What's New was written by Chiseland Greg. To learn more, anarchist and anti-political books, pamphlets, and other material are available at littleblackheart.com for news by and or about anarchists and up-to-the-minute commentary. See you at anarchistnews.org and or the Anarchist News IRC chat room linked on anarchistnews.org. <laughs> <laughs>